Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of economics, psychology, politics, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. You know, Mark, as you recall, we took a bit of a detour from our typical topics for our 10th podcast, which was called Told You So, uh, where we just talked about our pet peeves. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I had no idea you had such strong feelings about putting suffixes on the back of football jerseys. <laughs> or that fork that gets put on the left side of the plate, which really bothers you, right? Oh, my God. That's just a crime against humanity. Yeah. So what with this being our 20th podcast, I think another diversion from our normal format is in order. OK, but this time, rather than talking about our personal pet peeves, which is always fun, of course, we thought it would also be interesting and a good change of pace to talk about reasons to be hopeful about the future. You know, I really like that idea because any podcast focusing on how we got to be boiling frogs is almost inevitably going to focus on problems. <laughs> right. Not to mention it's always far easier to criticize things, right, than to talk about why things might turn out better in the long run. But I have to admit, Mark, preparing for this podcast was challenging for me, as our discussions in each of the previous podcast topics could lead us to be very pessimistic about the fate <laughs> of American democracy and our planet. I agree, but history shows us, I think, that that can't be the whole story. So today we're going to talk about reasons why the future may be brighter and better than we might expect it to be today. But since it's easier to criticize than to be hopeful, instead of doing 10 pet peeves like we did last time, we're only going to outline five areas of hope each this time. Fair enough. Besides, these topics are a lot meatier and more important than pet peeves. Okay, for my first hope, I'm going to start with one that may seem counterintuitive, especially to those who have listened to all of our other podcasts. And that is that there is some hope in American politics. I mean, we have to think of politics as being this sort of feedback loop, meaning sometimes only meaningful positive change happens after a period of serious issues. Oddly enough, many expert politicos will tell you that crises are critical to the functioning of representative democracies. In fact, there's even an old adage, never let a crisis go to waste. So maybe we have to go through a crisis to come out stronger. No one enjoys crises or actually even wants them. But as you said in an earlier podcast, Seth, we all learn more from struggling than peaceful contemplation. There's always the potential to come out of a painful period more enlightened. Yeah, and I think that's largely because, you know, today young people are caring about things more than ever, which is great. For which I can only say, too, thank goodness. And this is true, as I think you've observed, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Yeah, I mean, for example, it's pretty heartening to see the bravery of young women in particular who are standing up against the repressive regime in Iran. It may not affect a short-term change, but they may create a pattern and a longer-term permission structure for more and more people to stand up against authoritarianism. The same phenomena is also happening in Russia, mostly triggered by confronting the cruelty and craziness of the Ukraine war, and to a lesser extent in China. So there is some hope for longer-term structural political changes, even in those kind of tightly controlled countries. Yeah, and back on the local level, YIMBYs are getting traction, I mean, both in terms of public opinion as well as government policy to allow more building and more housing, whether it's ADUs or lot splits, multifamily housing or streamlined approval process, a whole bunch of other things. And, and moving back to the national scene, Mark, we've talked a lot about the crazy factor that has creeped into our politics, <laughs> I mean, particularly on the right. I mean, the fact that we not just tolerate, but celebrate ignorance, right, and demonization of others and delusional paranoia in our elected leaders. and of course, you know, we hopefully many of those people won't get elected in the first place. But I think it's reasonable to think that even those who do are somewhat doomed to fail miserably. I mean, at least over some reasonable period of time. 
And even if they don't, during that process, you know, the battle lines are frankly more easily noticed now, and that's a good thing. Their policies aren't subtle anymore. And I think it will ultimately backfire. But, you know, I recognize potentially after a lot of pain. Crazies on one side always trigger stronger responses from the other side, even though it may be delayed. For years, I've wondered where the opposition to right-wing crazies was on the progressive side of the spectrum. And frankly, I don't really feel that way anymore because those crazies have jump-started finally political energy on the left. Yeah, and it's not unreasonable to hope that just as truth eventually wins out in most circumstances, you take an organization like Fox News, right? Notwithstanding their current successful model, I think they're doomed to eventually be perceived as an obvious self-parody by most people. And you know, I also think it's pretty likely, although it will take a while, that so many of the folks working against democracy today will be properly framed as the villains in our history books, whether it's Trump or McConnell or Cruz or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Steve Bannon. Or Steve Miller, Mike Flynn, Ron DeSantis. Uh, we could probably go on for quite a while here, but let's try and stay optimistic. So I get it that even though it seems near impossible to imagine American politics going back to any degree of normalcy where we debate ideas among honest brokers, I will say that a demonstration that our democratic system and particularly our justice system works and holds people accountable will move us toward that more normal world. And, you know, and I mean, it would ultimately strengthen democracy if Donald Trump went to jail. And I think there are actually strong indications it may actually happen. I know he's slithered out of responsibility and accountability for almost everything he's done in life, but I actually am hopeful that this will finally come to an end in the right way. <laughs> his former majesty, I agree, is closer to being held accountable for his actions than he ever has been throughout his entire life. But whatever the ultimate outcome, even what's happened so far is a great thing for democracy and the rule of law. Although I agree it would be better if justice was actually doled out to him. You know, although there is a lot of political pressure to avoid holding him accountable, and I recognize there will probably be riots in the street the day he's indicted, I mean, let alone convicted, but there are enough people on the federal, state, and local level who have the responsibility to prosecute justice, and you have to think that at least a few of them will have the courage to see it through. You know, Mark, I find it interesting. I think in some way it demonstrates how in hindsight, Ford pardoning Nixon was maybe a really bad idea, even though it seemed to make sense to many at the time. Okay, Seth. So my first hope is also related to politics, specifically about how we work together as a society to solve problems. Solving problems, in fact, doing pretty much anything complicated, requires that we work together. The myth of the individual genius or inventor, if it was ever true, something I've come to doubt as I get older, is definitely not the way the world works today. You can see this in action when you look at how scientific breakthroughs get recognized. Almost any significant scientific paper is put together by teams, often large teams of people. So it's really important and a harbinger of what we might be able to achieve together that we can now organize ourselves more quickly, easily, and cheaply than we ever could before. Which means there's the potential for individual voices to be more easily heard than ever before, and definitely our collective voices through online grassroots organizing. Although, granted, as we've mentioned in several of our podcasts, this also means the crazies can fight each other more easily. Absolutely. But we shouldn't lose track of the fact that good and decent and sane people can, too. And if you'll pardon me for promoting us into that august category, we just have to be willing to make the effort. And the required level of effort and inconvenience keeps dropping all the time as communication technology gets better and cheaper. I saw this happen on a local level involving the website Nextdoor.com. Their mission was to recreate conversations over the backyard fence, only in the online world. 
And initially, their message boards and threads were like totally dominated by trolls and frankly crazy people of all stripes. But while it took a few years, the conversations now tend to be more balanced. Not that individual people have changed all that much in how they talk about things, but a broader group of viewpoints are being expressed. Well, if next door could become less of a pit, there's hope for the world at large. <laughs> Which leads me to my second hope for the future. On a number of fronts, the environment, sensitivity to others, by which I mean recognizing that just because I don't necessarily experience a problem or issue doesn't mean someone else doesn't have to wrestle with it every day, or law enforcement, you name it, there's been a growing awareness that maybe what we've been doing isn't a law of nature and can be changed for the better. Part of that admittedly is definitely due simply to our improved online connectivity. Yeah, and that's certainly part of the world is flat thesis, right? For sure. Another part of it, though, I think, is the ability of more people to travel and experience other ways of doing things, whether in the real world or online. There's nothing like being confronted by reasonable people living in ways different from your own to make you realize just how arbitrary and therefore subject to improvement through change many of the things we each take for granted are. Yeah, certainly. I mean, a lot of the realizations that I've come to personally, many of which we've discussed on previous podcasts, are the direct result of international travel and meeting a much more diverse group of people than I would in my regular life. You're never aware of the bubble you're in until you get outside it, which is the source of the old aphorism that travel broadens you, specifically your awareness of your own cultural idiosyncrasies. I know in my case, I've never forgotten my first experience along these lines. Years ago, I spent three weeks in Jakarta, Indonesia on a business trip. As a visiting bigwig, I was wined and dined by the local finance staff, one of whom asked me over lunch one day why I didn't have my elbows on the table while I was eating in the normal <laughs> Indonesian way. I stopped and laughed and told him, it's just the way I was brought up. After which, I put my elbows on the table and had a much more enjoyable time. <laughs> well, clearly, um, I'm made to eat in Jakarta instead of here. <laughs> All of this greater awareness holds the potential for us to come up with public policies and laws, which will end up doing a much better job of giving everyone a decent shot at life. It also, I think, might help us change our basic relationship with the world, to think of ourselves more as stewards and gardeners rather than extractors and raiders. Which certainly would have enormous beneficial impacts on human society. Not to mention this increasingly beleaguered planet we all share. You know, Mark, I think a large part of what you're talking about is sort of growing empathy among people. And that's definitely the foundation of my second hope. I think we've made incredible progress on acceptance and understanding of our fellow humans and the wonderful results from having a more diverse society. I mean, sometimes the boiling frog works in a positive direction, right? <laughs> we've seen that in the rapid change of how we discuss gender issues, for example, right? And there's no reason to believe that progress won't continue. It's hard for me to remember sometimes the way we all used to be when you and I were growing up, so insensitive towards others when we talked about them, because the changes just happen slowly over time. Right. We've made great progress on acceptance of our fellow humans. I mean, as we discussed in our Toad Rage podcast, I mean, more wokeness is actually a good thing in general, as I think it represents a new enlightenment and a realization of how we're connected as a species and the bumps we're experiencing along the way and how we discuss this and how we're sharing that realization, you know, are frankly temporary issues that will at some point be forgotten. Although I still have friends and relatives who mock any form of wokeness. <laughs> you know, but I guess one could argue that 
just to be a subject of conversation, you know, even by skeptics is progress, right? <laughs> An example of this progress and a heartening trend is the growing prominence of women in sports, for example, getting closer to equal pay, even in some sports, certainly more opportunities for young women to be involved in sports, to be more empowered. Another example is that as a society, we've reframed how we discuss issues like poverty. Political discourse has shifted to be about the social safety net. We don't really talk about welfare queens, you know, like the way we once did. But I think rather, at least on average, we understand most people are poor, not because they're lazy or want to be dependent on the government, but rather have a set of circumstances around which they have limited control. And it's our collective role to address these circumstances. And by addressing the problem that they may be experiencing, we position ourselves to benefit from their personal creativity being activated in whatever form that ends up taking. I mean, I would say perhaps most significantly as an American society, I think we are well into what I like to describe as the third phase of dismantling bias and discrimination. Recognizing, though, that it may take a while to get through this phase and maybe even longer than the first two phases. So what I mean by that is the first phase of dismantling bias and discrimination really just came about from the realization or the agreement that no human is property. Although, interestingly, I've been reading about archaeological research, which seems to show many of our ancestors knew that fact long ago, but that it was forgotten along the way to creating what we like to call the modern world. Yeah, so we absolutely had to relearn that and reaccept that. And then we went into the second phase, which was just agreeing that all people should actually have equal rights and equal access to justice, right? What a novel concept, right? <laughs> this is what all the, the civil rights movement was about. And then I think now we're in this third phase, which is understanding the institutional issues and the unconscious biases that have built up over the first two phases, and then attempting to change those structures while also recognizing how both these remaining institutional biases, as well as the downstream effects from past discrimination, still negatively affect people. I mean, and that includes things like wealth accumulation. An example of these types of discussions include everything we're talking now about police biases and pretextual stops and, and the like. Although I think you're generally referring here to race-based discrimination, I think it's also true about understanding and changing society's approach to the discrimination against and harassment of women. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a sign of progress that we are now more aggressively prosecuting such actions criminally where we used to let perpetrators get off by paying civil judgments if they suffered any consequence at all. Agreed. So let's move on to hope number three. I mean, for me, it's about science. Mark, science is still kicking ass and better than it's ever been, right? <laughs> Despite the political disdain for it in some quarters. I mean, we are paradoxically becoming much dumber in so many areas of human endeavors, as we've discussed on previous podcasts while at the same time becoming a lot smarter and accomplishing amazing things because of the human intellect and our ability to collaborate. And that happens, obviously, in the medical area, whether it's mRNA vaccines, whether it's better treatment for cancer, understanding the human genome and that potential for personalizing medical treatment, an increased understanding of brain science, and hopefully newer treatments you know, on the horizon there. And even something that's been studied for centuries, you know, our understanding of theoretical physics and the properties of the universe continues to improve, not to mention our growing knowledge of what makes us all tick on both a biochemical basis, as you were saying, and also on a psychological level. Yeah, and even on a more day-to-day -day basis, I mean, our food continues to get healthier and our awareness of healthy food choices continues to improve. Talking about what we did as kids, right, it's amazing what's changed how we view food since you and I were young. And imagine how much more it will improve when our kids are our age. Speaking of how we used to eat a lot of stuff that wasn't good for us, 
I think there's still a Twinkie under glass and monitored <laughs> by a webcam on the web. And it's been there for like 40 years and not decayed yet. <laughs> I think I saw that. And in the realm of food, I mean, lab-grown meat has amazing potential to both address hunger issues around the world and also to do it in a sustainable manner. It'd be a lot healthier for the planet, too. Not to mention avoiding periodic catastrophic explosions of pig and hog waste ponds in rural areas. But speaking of things grown in a lab, even things like lab-grown diamonds, I mean, they have the potential to disrupt the business that has historically caused all sorts of environmental destruction, as well as wars and human suffering. So, in general, hats off to all current and future scientists of all fields. You know, Seth, I love reading and talking about science, and science fiction for that matter, too. So I think it's great that the last hope you cited uh, was about science. It's also related to my next hope, which is about the spread of knowledge in general. There's an aspect of knowledge and learning that's changed over the course of our lifetimes that most of us just take for granted. We are the first generation of humanity that can literally know something about absolutely any topic we might take an interest in. Our ability to learn is now limited solely by how much time we have to devote to learning. Well, and having a good internet connection, right? <laughs> yes, although Elon Musk and others are trying to eliminate even that constraint with their <laughs> orbital internet systems. Yeah, we'll see. And while there's definitely a lot of fake information out there, there's far more generally accurate and useful stuff. In fact, part of the reason why I said earlier science is kicking ass is because of the incredibly improved systematic ways scientists can collaborate and share information, no doubt. And it's not just scientists. It benefits all of us. And it reveals something hopeful, I think, about human nature. I had someone ask me the other day, where in the world did all the stuff on the internet come from? Who put it all together? The answer is, we all did. Because as intelligent social animals, we get a charge out of sharing what we know and hearing from others about what they know. So when we enhance our connectivity, we create more ways to share our knowledge and ourselves, leading to a self-sustaining ongoing positive feedback loop all of which gives us an enormously greater potential to build a better future than any generation that came before us. Well, that is certainly a hopeful take. <laughs> <laughs> which leads me to another thing I'm hopeful about, my number four hope, so to speak, namely that the average level of education is much, much higher than it's ever been and looks likely to continue increasing. And despite what the elected leaders of certain states, you know, looking at you, Florida, uh, you know, may try to do. <laughs> if intelligence enables a social primate to create communities that in turn enable individuals to do much more than they ever could alone, education supercharges that. Because it's like Marine Corps basic training for your mind, honing it so you can be all you can be. I mean, not to mention that education opens the door to doing and learning even more. I mean, just another positive feedback loop, probably an unbounded one, that. As we just discussed, in the scientific arena, it's already paid off gigantically by letting us master the world with all that means for the quality of life, health, lifespan, all that stuff, to an extent our ancestors of not that long ago would never have thought possible. Yeah, Mark, wasn't there a famous quote from like a 19th century patent office official who thought they should close the office because he assumed that everything has been invented that could be invented? <laughs> yeah, he said he felt sorry for future generations because all that was left for them to do was to measure the next decimal point. Boy, was he wrong, because improving the quality of your data inevitably leads to realizing, oops, I guess we didn't know as much about how the world works as we thought we did thereby also opening doors that you didn't even know existed. 
And because education and knowledge build on each other, they're not only increasing, they're increasing exponentially. You know, and I also think that schools today are really starting to internalize that their main function is not really just to teach kids all the basic subjects, but actually to teach critical thinking. I mean, and that's what will move us forward in every arena. Which is why when I'm feeling down about recent reversals in our upward trajectory, I remind myself that if all we can do at any given time is to hang on and keep the nut jobs and crazies at bay one more day, we can still build that better future we all want. Because each day gives us another chance to, both individually and collectively, make another better choice. In financial terms, life is a game of options, not static decisions. Okay, Mark, that's a good one. So for my number four hope, I'm going to talk about another aspect of human intelligence. This is our creativity. I mean, just like science is doing so well, so is human creativity. We are amazing in our ability to create. I mean, ultimately, I think that will serve us pretty well as a species. And, you know, certainly that includes entertainment. There are so many creative and talented people generating so many amazing pieces of expression in all forms, like art, music, entertainment, comedy, what have you. An example of how we rock at creativity is our current position of being, by any possible measure, in the golden age of television. <laughs> Not to mention any of us, if we were independently wealthy enough, could probably spend our entire lives <laughs> laughing at funny YouTube videos. You know, and of course, there are downsides to too much screen time, right? Especially for younger people. And of course, everything should be done in moderation, kids. But there's no denying that across all types of platforms and from all sorts of people around the world, we have an amazing ability to make others laugh, cry, think, and connect through entertainment. And I think that just serves us really well as a species and will continue to. And it's not just entertainment. Humans love to create. It's part of how we define ourselves as individuals within a community. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's about the creativity of humans to solve all kinds of problems. For example, you know, even despite the horrible impact of overturning Roe versus Wade, there are so many people using their creative problem-solving skills to address this, including that doctor who will launch a floating medical clinic in the Gulf of Mexico to perform abortions, <laughs> right, outside of state jurisdictions. I mean, although there are many of us in this world, in this country, who are problem creators, there are also some serious problem solvers in the world, and that gives me hope. Okay, so now we have come to our last hope for each of us, and I think both of us want to talk about something really big. You know, for me, it's about climate change, right? And despite all of the bad news around climate change, its devastating effects, the political obstinance to do anything about it, I think there's actually some hope in how we will address climate change, because I think we've finally gotten to a certain acceptance, and at least obviousness, for most people, right, about the crisis. It's not really a debate among young people. And even a lot of former diehard climate change deniers have begun shifting to, oh, it's too expensive to solve, or uh, let's not spend too much money solving it. But if you think what's actually happened practically, you know, one area where we see this becoming sort of more actualized is electric cars. I mean, I think we finally hit a tipping point here. I mean, it's interesting to note that CO2 emissions from the burning of fossil fuels are on track to actually rise less than 1% this year. And that's a big part due to renewables and EVs taking off. Creating incentives to encourage adoption of better technologies, surprise, actually worked. Something those who instinctively oppose such incentives ought to keep in mind for the future in addressing other problems. I mean, for sure, if you look at solar power or even green power in general, I mean, it's already cost effective and it's becoming more so every day. 
It's important to note that the use of coal is declining and renewable energy prices have plummeted. I mean, I think since 2010, solar power costs are down more than 85% and the cost of wind is down more than 55%. And this is a great example you know, of what you just mentioned, Mark, at creating those incentives and frankly, what we discussed in our very first podcast on how government and capitalism are codependent and government is required to make markets work better, right? When it cuts through those barriers. You know, and like you referenced earlier, Mark, it's heartening to notice that the language of climate deniers has softened significantly in the last decade or so as empirical evidence just, you know, keeps piling up. It's also becoming a losing political issue in many parts of the United States, even where opposition to climate change mitigation used to be obligatory. I learned just the other day that a lot of local regulatory innovations, like requiring electrification of new homes or when appliances are replaced, are spreading like wildfire across the country. Which demonstrates that at least in the medium or the long run, the truth does win out. So that does give me hope. Lurking behind all of the things we're hopeful about is an even bigger possibility, which is the last hope I'll cite. We're closing in on the ability to provide a decent life for everyone alive. Part of that, admittedly, is the result of bringing our population growth under more control. Worldwide empirical evidence shows that if you give men and women, particularly women, a chance to do more than have numerous children in the hope that at least some of them will survive, almost all of us pretty quickly stop wanting to have lots of kids. But just as important are advances in technology, particularly information and transportation technology, coupled to vastly improved connectivity. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that we could build a world where our focus shifts to merely bettering ourselves because all of our basic wants and needs are taken care of so cheaply and easily that we don't bother to count the cost, which is, as any devoted Star Trek fan knows, exactly the world Gene Roddenberry envisioned. That's right. It's certainly better than the many dystopian futures envisioned by some other science fiction writers. <laughs> well, as one sci-fi author observed himself, writing about utopias is really boring, whereas writing about dystopias is great because they offer lots of opportunities for dramatic tension. Well, Mark, you certainly ended it on a really big note. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and, and as you and I discussed in our podcast about risk, right, there's certainly a bell curve of possible ways humanity could go. And we're just giving some hope that we could wind up on the right side of that bell curve. And that it's all up to us, the choices we make as individuals and the values we choose to prioritize. This has been a great counterpoint to those first 19 podcasts, Seth. It reminds me of one of our most ancient myths, that of Pandora's box. Because while Pandora opening that box unleashed evil into the world, the last thing that came out of it was hope. Well, I guess there's always hope, or, or more precisely, there has to be hope. We just need to keep it alive and keep ourselves and our democracy alive for long enough to see these hopes, or ones like them, get fulfilled. Well, now, Mark, we should be refreshed and ready to jump back into being pessimists in our next podcast. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't want to go off brand too far, would we? <laughs> You know, well, as we pointed out in the introduction, it's always a lot easier to be pessimistic than optimistic about pretty much anything. Always remembering that while optimists are right no more often than pessimists, optimists have a hell of a lot more fun getting where they're going. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good note on which to end this podcast. Uh, thank you, Mark. And thanks to our listeners. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Remembering to keep hope alive. Or if not, at least drink some good wine along the way. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. See you next time. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. 
Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.